Love this podcast? Support this show through the supporter feature from Acast. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news... All right, I'll do. It. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. What's your hands? What's your hands? Welcome to the Partly Political Broadcast, the comedy politics podcast that says if you're going to have to self-isolate, why not make it seem like work by listening to this show? No way, that doesn't sound right. I'm the currently uninfected Tin and Duyeb, and as the World Health Organization says the best way to deal with COVID-19 is to test, 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 the UK government shows that their plans are the very best as they've been testing the public for years. Standing in front of a crowded room full of journalists, camera operators and security staff to name but a few, the Prime Minister and morning role left out in the rain, Boris Johnson, advised the British public to avoid all unnecessary social contact without a hint of irony. With the COVID-19 virus infecting over 1,500 people in the UK, Johnson warned us in what sounds like the sort of talk he'd usually only reserve for his girlfriend that we're approaching the fast growth of the upward curve. As a result, the government have advised people to avoid pubs, clubs, theatres and other social venues, but they won't actually be telling them to close, which is either because those businesses can't get the insurance or because every time the Prime Minister enters one, everyone calls him a wanker and moves away, so he's not 100% sure that they're social at all. The capital city London is a few weeks ahead with the virus over everywhere else, which is always what happens with trends, and that means, based on the history, that the North won't be getting it for at least 30 years or so and only at a limited rollout. The over-70s are being asked not to go out, a move that really should have been implemented by the government way back, probably around the December election time. And the chief medical advisor and the young boy from Love Actually, if he'd had a terrible life, Chris Whitty, said that the single aim is just to reduce deaths from the virus, as otherwise there'd not be any work left for the DWP to do. But isolation time still isn't in line with the World Health Organization's advice, and school closures aren't happening. Maybe out of fears that if they did, Johnson's many estranged kids would have more time on their hands to track him down. 
The UK chief scientific advisor and what if Greg Wallace didn't spend his childhood eating e-numbers, Sir Patrick Valance, said that schools would only be shut down at the right stage of the outbreak, which I'm guessing is probably around the Easter holidays when it won't cost quite so much. Who knew that British exceptionalism would come into play even when dealing with a global pandemic? None of those sensible foreign virus tackling methods for us Brits. I mean, why test people who might have the virus when we can all just avoid talking about it in public and tut loudly when someone coughs, which should give them the message to stop unless they're very uncouth yobs. With the current figure at over 160,000 confirmed infections worldwide, everywhere else seems to be doing it properly. Germany has closed its borders, something you'd think Britain would be the first to do on account of how people voted last year. Spanish police are using drones to stop people from moving, something that British people did for fun when it came to Gatwick Airport and people wanting to go on holiday, but now not so much. Italy has had over 2,000 deaths and is on complete lockdown, with loads of videos of Italians singing from their balconies to keep each other's spirits up, something that definitely wouldn't happen here. I mean, the closest in Britain would be someone accidentally leaving the volume on their porn site up as they leaned out the window with a fag and a can of super tenants to shout about how you part like a cunt. In France, President and troubled pop chip Emmanuel Macron is shutting the country down by the time that you hear this, meaning that he gets to delay the second stage of the elections his party is currently losing. Hmm, convenient. All non-essential movement will be banned for 15 days, meaning that mime artists will probably suffer most. And Macron said several times during his speech that we are at war, which if it's true means that he should spend all the country's defence money on healthcare instead, but for some reason he didn't go that far. Even terrorist group ISIS have told their supporters not to travel to Europe, now meaning that the only way we can really stop the terrorists from winning is by going outside and coughing a lot. And that goes against all the advice. But Britain? Well, the original plan was going to be herd immunity, but the government realised that wouldn't be very smart, as it wouldn't fare well in a country where it's only ever really the very rich or politicians who are herd, and not just because they're largely composed of bull. Obviously, herd immunity actually means that as many people as possible get the virus and then hopefully become immune. Something that science says definitely wouldn't happen, a lot of people would die, and we should have all been really wary just because when the Conservatives seem actually willing to share something with everyone, we ought to know it's a trap. But no, for the country now, the advice is just please try not to go to the pub. The same advice given by self-declared fitness gurus every January. If it's not going to work when over-aroused beagle Joe Wicks tell us, what use is it hearing from the Prime Minister? An endless plank in all the wrong ways. Ah, uh, remember last week? It all seemed so easy then. The Chancellor and man composed entirely of a toddler's dining set, Rishi Sunak, announced his shiny new budget like he was at an Apple event showing off the latest smartwatch that tells you which stores still have toilet roll in them. In it was a whole load of money to deal with the coronavirus, ironic that it's only during a virus pandemic that they're willing to cough up. The Chancellor said we'll get through the coronavirus together, which seems like terrible advice when we should be self-isolating. And where's all this new money coming from anyway? Borrowing. Something Sunak says he will not apologise for, presumably not even to Labour, who he seems to have borrowed most of his ideas from. I mean, I say that, but it's not at all a radical budget, and I think most people were just immediately impressed, because the Conservatives usually only spend money on breakfasts, Brexit, bridges, going to court to make sure they don't have to give people with disabilities money. Oh, and to be fair, this money for tackling COVID-19 does make sense, as they usually spend loads on spin when they want to stop something nasty from spreading. But really, it feels a bit like buying the public some shit flowers from the garage to cover up for the fact that they've forgotten something important again. 
And this time round, that important something happened to be social care, tackling climate change, any provisions for self-employed people and any concerns about what the virus or Brexit might do to the economy. The latter of which might mean everything Sunak promised is pretty irrelevant anyway, and I suppose we should commend the Chancellor on being extra economical with any sense of reality. The budget came mere hours after it was announced that Health Minister and what it would look like if the cast of Loose Women used an Instagram filter that made their faces look like medieval parchment, Nadine Dorries, had contracted the coronavirus, meaning that after her ill-advised appearance on I'm a Celebrity in 2012, all her career political highlights have involved failing to declare that she's dealing with bugs, while incorrectly thinking that because people are talking about something, she should get involved with it. While the main worry was that Dorries would use the experience to declare that she had proof people were losing work due to foreign bodies, instead it just meant that the British Parliament had now been exposed, which all MPs dealt with by filling up the Commons in order to listen to Sunak's budget. Still, he did announce sick pay would start from day one, and there's no one quite like politicians to take advantage of being paid to not do any work. Later that day, Johnson took ages to announce the country was in the delay phase and said quite bluntly that Britain had to prepare to lose loved ones before their time. It sounds callous, but I fully believe that based on his personal experience, he means that self-isolation means spending more time with your partner than you'd like and it will probably end in divorce. The plan then was to limit the curve and stop pressure on hospitals and Johnson said people should stay at home and Google their symptoms as Britain is now a country where its leader has the same medical skills as me when I think I've found a lump but it's always something I've dropped on myself at dinner. The Labour Party announced that they were going to cancel their leadership winner announcement event in a moment that felt like when you don't want to go out and you're thinking of excuses but then the event is cancelled anyway. What a relief. The local and mayoral elections have been delayed until next year, meaning we all have to pity London mayoral candidate and patronising Sultana Rory Stewart, who's now no longer staying on people's sofas or walking round shaking hands and must instead spend a whole extra year lurking in Kew Gardens in a Mac, assuming it'll get him votes. US President and blowtorch bagpipe Donald Trump blocked all flights from Europe to the US, except for returning US citizens, which is what most of the flights are for anyway, and for any to or from the UK or Ireland. Many assume that was because he has golf courses there, but I'm certain it's because, as both places speak English, he reckons they're actually just part of America and have been all along. Tests are still not being sent around the US, and Trump has spent time with many international officials at his golf course in Mar-a-Lago, several of whom have been tested positive for COVID-19 afterwards, but the White House doctor insists that Donald doesn't have it, though it might be hard to tell his temperature through the radioactive glow of his fake tan. The stock markets have continued to crash and Trump is warning the US that there will be a recession, as in financial, because politically they've already had that nailed since 2016. Meanwhile, the number of cases in South Korea have been declining after an outright ban on large gatherings, a shutdown of educational facilities, all sports events being cancelled and mass testing. Us in the West seem to only be beginning on that path, but I guess that's because we've never stressed enough the importance of career advice. Yeah. Yeah, I went there. Yeah, I did. It's a weird time. I'm allowed it. I'm allowed it. So, now in the UK, times have very quickly changed. Where once the media railed against cancel culture, now everyone is angry when events are still going ahead. All sports events have been rescheduled for a later date, meaning that the BBC showed Mrs Brown's Boys live instead of Match of the Day on Saturday, prompting many to ask if they really wanted to persuade people to stay inside or not. The bosses of Virgin Atlantic have written to the Prime Minister saying that the UK airline industry will need a bailout of £7.5 billion in order to survive the impact of it all, something the government may have been able to do if Virgin hadn't kept suing the NHS for tonnes of money. They are the business equivalent of a vampire complaining that the humans he's just fed from won't buy him blackout blinds.
but we don't need to close schools yet. We don't need to insist pubs are shut. We don't need to financially compensate people so they don't have to travel to work and potentially spread the disease over fear of becoming homeless. We don't need these things because we are Britain and we have the blitz spirit. And by that, I mean we all think we're going to die and violence, looting and organised crime will be on the rise within days. But somehow, somehow everyone will get away with it and just blame Europe. Oh, howdy, people. These are very strange times, aren't they? Um, I don't know if you're still going to work or school or wherever you are or if your life is continuing on remotely uh, as normal um i'm in a very weird mix of having most of my work cancelled which is really quite terrifying um but i don't feel that worried about the bug i know i should i probably should uh, there is definite panic about it um i spoke to my um nan who is 94 this year and uh i spoke to her about it and she she she'd been ill last week she'd had fever and coughing and trouble breathing and um i don't want to say that it's coronavirus we don't know for sure there's no testing but it sounded very much like the symptoms and um she just lay in bed and dealt with it for two days because she didn't want anyone to worry she didn't tell us about it um and when i spoke to her i was like why didn't you say anything she said well it's going to take more than a bug to get me i'm really obstinate you know i'm methuselah which is, I mean, just incredible. So hearing that my nan's got through it and she's quite a frail little lady, I mean, obviously not, uh, does make me think health-wise I'll probably be okay. But it's more the fact that everything's, everything is uh, not the same. Uh, everything's cancelled. We're having to self-isolate, um, which is a very weird thing to do. What stage of self-isolation have you got to? Um, I mean, I'm probably going to go through this week the uh, trying to work out how else I can maybe earn any money, followed by the cleaning up the flat in every which way, maybe finally sorting out all my daughter's clothes that she doesn't fit into anymore. Um, I mean, I reckon I'm probably going to get quite a lot of useful stuff done before I start really panicking. Um, might make some n- nice meals. Ah, it's tricky, isn't it? I mean, Disney Plus starts on March 26th. That seems well planned is this all a conspiracy by mickey very likely who knows um but i hope you've got some good things going um i'm gonna try and do i don't know maybe bonus ones of these maybe just some streaming of stand-up and bits and bobs and other things to try and keep entertainment vaguely alive it does seem like uh, the world uh, largely well not the world uh, britain largely doesn't give a shit um the government aren't announcing any provisions for self-employed people at all apart from maybe uh, employment support allowance if you qualify for it um their theaters aren't getting any support so if they close it's their fault which means they don't get the insurance which means they can't pay their cast so basically uh, i might have to get some sort of special job where i bribe people to pay me otherwise i'll come around their house and cough a lot uh, would that work it's, it's a bit mean isn't it it's a little bit mean um speaking of which uh I, normally i do ask you to review the show um and uh you know tell people about the show uh this week this is a genuine call out firstly i should say thank you very very much to felix anonymous um sharona uh dj ham sauce um sean rachel richard uh and gabs um and james as always for donating to the Kofi site um and also to uh colleen bradley and uh andy for uh donating to the patreon or upping 
via Patreon donations, um, all of whom did it, A, because you're very lovely people, but also I did do a bit of a call-out and a panic on social media, basically going, it's not even just coffee this month, it is simply paying uh, my bills and things, because I don't know if I'll ever work again. If we're now suddenly in a very Walking Dead society, um, no one needs comedy, do they? They need it. It's not a necessity, is it? It's not like being able to, like, you know, use a samurai sword or... um, I really wish I didn't have all my knowledge from zombie films. Um, Anyway... If you can help, it's uh, ko-fi.com uh, forward slash bro or patreon.com uh, forward slash bro, which is meant to be getting pounds as, on there as well as dollars, but apparently Patreon don't think a global pandemic is enough to get that going. Um, but any of those things are more than appreciated this month. They are pretty much uh, my livelihood. Oh, it's horrible, isn't it? It's horrible asking for money. It is not fun, um, but I guess it is either that or, I mean, we've got quite a lot of blue roll at the moment i could probably probably sell quite a bit off maybe that's the that's the plan i'm the no one's no one's here no one's gonna smell how clean my bum is or not i can use something else. oh this is this is sort of grim talk this is what happens in global pandemics people i've never i've never experienced it before but things get dark real quick um so uh before we move on look there's there's lots of things this week and i'm going to keep things coming over the next few weeks and and as always look who do you want to hear from um next week i know i've got an interview lined up about the effects of uh global pandemic on the economy and things like that which i think are important important um but who else do you want to hear from while we're all in lockdown do you want to use it to explore futures and political ideas that we wouldn't normally because uh, there's other things going on or do you want me just to replace it all with i don't know bird song because you'll have been inside for four weeks who knows um but do let me know at all the usual email type things um a couple of other things one is uh, last week's interview uh most people told me they could only hear it in one ear so could i i don't know what happened i did nothing wrong um maybe steve was just sitting at an angle uh when talking to me um I'm genuinely, genuinely baffled. Maybe he's so left or right wing that that's the only side he was heard on. I don't know, uh, and I can't remember which side it was, so I can't be sure or pin either of those uh, suggestions to him. Um, the other thing is that I've spent the last few days before everything went into lockdown, I was up north... Um, not the you might be further north than this in which case it's the south to you uh, but i was in helmsley in yorkshire and then i was in chorley in lancashire doing the kids politics show uh, with my pal tatton from simple politics um and in these times you've got to support everyone well i say you've got to there's lots of very important things you need to support right now in this weird time that food banks are going to need a hell of a lot of food um there are going to be people with a lot of financial difficulty there's going to be lots of nurses and doctors and stuff who still having to go to work i mean look i'm not going to pretend that we're the most important people but if there are creatives or people who earn their living doing creative stuff and we've got no other support you do have to you know help them out at least give them a nudge and a bit of appreciation and anyway all i'm saying um is tatton uh from simple politics his book the breakdown came out in paperback form this past week and so we thought we'd record a little plug for it um while we were sitting in uh, one of the uh, really fun hotel rooms at the Premier Inn in Chorley. Um, that just, I mean, it, it looked like it was built 100 years ago and no one had been in since. Um, I don't know how Lenny Henry can sleep so comfortably in those places. Anyway, um, here is a very quick promo with Tatton. 
Well, look, 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 here we go. We just get, we'll get it going. Let's see what happens. I can always edit, edit it yes. so that you don't talk on it whatsoever. <laughs> so that it's just me talking and no one else gets to say anything. I think that's preferable yeah. to me talking. I think it also is the best way to sell your book, to be honest. <laughs> the, the less people hear from me, yeah. the more they'll want to buy the well, book. Well, I mean, I, for a start, can already promote your book very well by saying that it's paperback, whereas previously it was hardback, so it's lighter. It's it's much lighter. I mean, I think twenty five grams lighter. So that's exactly what you want in a in a world where we're probably having you know carry face masks and backpacks full of I don't know and you know antibiotic fire extinguisher spray and when you're packing suits, yeah. when you're packing your bag to flee the global apocalypse. You know, this is the bag you're going to be carrying for yeah. 25, 30, 40 years for the rest of your life. You don't want to be carrying around a hardback. No, God, no, no. Exactly, you want a light paperback. Mm. Um, which is even better than a Kindle because once you've read it, toilet paper, we've run out of toilet paper. No, uh, no, it's fire, you wouldn't you, fire, no, 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 sorry, no, sorry. You wouldn't, you would use literally anything else rather than my book as toilet paper. Sure, sure. A Kindle would be better. Okay. I feel, I was trying to give people more reason to run out and buy it, but you've, you've taken away a use that it had. I'm only joking. What, um, why should people buy your book, Tatters? Well, it's 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 a it's a really it's a really important book because it's I can't say it's a really important book. I mean, who, who says that their own book is really important? Um, I mean, but uh, yeah, there's probably some people that think their own. But uh, Trump, he yes, says yes, it was me. Trump and me. There you go. Um, That's it. Xi you, Jinping. Can you please say it's an important book? It is an important book. I enjoyed Thank you very much. It. There we go. I found it very useful in the way that it it breaks down all the political ideologies and tells you both the similarities and differences between them so that you can form your arguments coherently and correctly and understand all sides of the kind of British political world. Oh, thank you very much. Yes, (laughs) I agree with that. I mean, the point is we've reached the breakdown. We've reached the point where people can't have a civil conversation with those people with whom they disagree. And one of the reasons for that is just a lack of understanding. How can you want to... I mean, let's say privatisation of the NHS, right? That gets a lot of people very hot under the collar. And it's something they will never agree with. But understanding why the person you're talking to thinks that privatisation of the NHS is a good thing is a good thing. It's not because they're a terrible person. It's not necessarily because they themselves are going to make loads and loads of money from it. It's because they believe in competition and the free market and that makes things more efficient and would end up giving a better level of health care. And you can agree with that or not agree with that, but being able to have that conversation and not just get sweary and shouty, yeah. even on social media, is a really important thing. And that's also a very good topic right now when the coronavirus is spreading, for you both to be having a civil conversation through your coughs, through your sweats <laughs> and your fevers. Yeah, uh, yeah. but at a very understanding level. You don't want to get really upset with somebody when you can't really breathe without well, being upset exactly with somebody. It. Exactly. You need it. to stay calm so you can breathe, and breathing is quite important. It, it, do you know what? I'd say almost as important as your book. Not quite, <laughs> but almost as important. I mean, as your I would book. put them on a level, to be fair. It's definitely, uh, definitely. Up. I think, I think, breathing in your book is exactly what people should do. Yes. Um, so uh, it, it's now in paperback. It's available everywhere, um, apart from that one bookshop in York that you got very angry with. But I can't. It must have sold out. It, I think there was a probably, rush on. Probably what what happened. Yeah. Apart from that, people can get it everywhere. Uh, they can get it everywhere. If you wanted to support 
the work I do, you can get it from spstuff.co.uk and I'll sign it for you. Oh, yes. What? Oh, yes. You'll oh, get a lady. book delivered to your home. You don't have to leave your house. If you're self-isolating, don't worry. It'll be delivered to your house with my scribble on it. How many times will you have washed your hands before you scribble on it? Three. Perfect. That's enough. That's enough. Go get it, people. Go get it. So, yeah, uh, that's Titan's book. Um, it is out now. Uh, you can get it on all the places, although, as you're not allowed to go outside, maybe just buy it on Kindle. Um, it, but the paperback is, is uh, what has come out recently, so do grab a copy of that if you are allowed to. I think you probably get it around the world. I don't know. I don't um, right, uh, that is all um, on this week's show there. However, there is an interview uh, with Matthew Lawrence at the Commonwealth Think Tank talking all about the Green New Deal, um, which is very important. Plus, I have a little look at the budget, even though um, it's already rendered mostly invalid. But hey, got to fill time. I've got loads of time to fill now. I mean, what else are you going to do? What, you can't watch all of Netflix. What, what's on there? I mean, like there's, oh, there's a documentary about how wasps are a conspiracy or something. Yeah, no waste of time let's hear about the budget right that might not be um still there yeah i can maybe that show about wasps it'll be quite good it is important in situations like these that we're able to look past such panic times towards the future when after the human race has survived nay conquered this pandemic we'll all come out of the other side and shit ourselves about the effects of climate change instead if anything, this coronavirus panic has really highlighted how important joined-up future-proof thinking is in order not to just tackle a crisis but reshape the society we live in for the best as we do. I mean, right now we're seeing how a functioning health service, social care system, strong communication, an economy based on helping people rather than profit and somebody at supermarkets to guard the loo roll and shout just how often do you shit at people before letting them take appropriate amounts would have all led to the UK handling the coronavirus crisis a little bit better while at the end of it emerging as a better society and place, even if our bathroom isn't anymore. Similarly, with climate change, it seems pretty obvious that there must be a way to focus on climate-friendly measures that also in turn mean that people get better healthcare, enough to eat and have a man at the supermarket shouting, just how often do you shit at people? Nola, I know he won't be necessary, but I'm trying to think of positive job creation possibilities in the new world we're going to live in, so back off, yeah? The Green New Deal is a concept and now proposal of legislation and policy that promotes the idea that by changing the very nature of how we use fuel and live by 2030, we can, well, stop nature changing. It's a pretty good tagline, that, isn't it? Change the very nature, we can stop nature changing. I don't know why they didn't hire me for that. There are, of course, criticisms that such a thing is just out to destroy capitalism, but I'd argue everyone dying in a fire, tsunami, earthquake, flood hurricane would affect capitalism just a little bit more. I mean, no one's going to go see the new Bond film then, are they? No matter when it's on. In the US, the Green New Deal is currently being proposed by Bernie Sanders' campaign, and it was also proposed last year in the UK by Labour's manifesto, which is why a lot of commentators think it's too optimistic, because you have to remember that optimism apparently only works when it comes to surviving a collapse in trading and the economy, and absolutely nothing else. But in order for humans to still be around in the future, something has to change with how we are and how we do that. And so we may as well make it for the benefit of everyone, including people whose calling in life is shouting at customers who need loo roll. Last week, I spoke to Matthew Lawrence at the Commonwealth Think Tank, a group that designs ownership models for a democratic and sustainable economy, which I'm pretty sure most of us would like. 
The Commonwealth have released a very comprehensive blueprint for a Green New Deal, and so I thought it'd be good to ask Matt exactly what that means, why we might want one, and I didn't at all mention my Lou Roll shouting man because it wasn't appropriate. I spoke to Matt just before the coronavirus kicked off, though as you'll hear, he does mention it. We also spoke the day before the budget announcement, where, as you may have noticed, Rishi Sunak promoted a green future by um, promising more money for roads and a fuel freeze. Ugh. Even if you're not a Green New Deal fan for some reason, I still think talking about potential futures is very important in a time like this. And while we're all self-isolating, I hope this chat gives you some hope for how things could be done if we're not too busy trying to work out how you could turn a pandemic into a reality show. How much do you shit, ITV plus what? No, no, definitely not. Um, There is also some occasional rustling noise during this. I have no idea what it is and I've tried to remove it, but if you're self-isolating, you can perhaps pretend it's the wind in the trees and feel temporarily calm, or that your head's stuck inside a paper bag and it's easier to breathe, whichever works best for you. Hope you enjoy. Here is Matt. Hi, Matt. Um, I think... Most importantly, uh, I should ask you what the Green New Deal is. I mean, I've heard quite a lot about it and I've heard it mentioned a lot and I know that it is uh, climate friendly, but I don't really know much about it other than that. So what is the Green New Deal? So the Green New Deal is this idea that in the face of not just a climate emergency, which is worsening every day, but a wider sort of environmental catastrophe, we need not just to sort of decarbonise our society, but actually build the democratic economy of tomorrow in the process. So we need to combine environmental and economic justice together, not treat them separately. And that will require a step change in public policy, in particular a step change in the quality and volume of investment in our economy, anchored by an increase in public investment, and a deliberate attempt to restructure our economy through government policy so that jobs are sustainable, the wealth we create is green and sort of not destructive of the natural world, and critically that it's equitable, that justice is woven into the heart of our society. So it's about combining sort of climate change and economic strategies at once, isn't it? Because up until now, often they're seen as two separate things. Exactly. There's been a sort of pattern in the past, not everyone, uh, but there has been a pattern in the past of too often separating out the environmental and the economic, when of course they're inseparable and intertwined because all societies, all economies ultimately rest on, rely upon the natural systems upon which they they use, they operate on, they sort of extract food and sort of energy systems, etc. from. And I think what the Green New Deal is trying to do and what the sort of modern sort of environmental movement is trying to do is actually say that because they're inseparable, injustices in one are injustices in the other and we have to sort of dismantle the inequalities of extractive economics by which i mean extracting value not just from nature so taking fossil fuels out of the ground but also taking value from labor from care systems from the commons that is unfairly rewarded and so actually it's about saying we've got to recombine how we treat the environment and the economy and in doing so weave justice into how we treat both and I mean, you know, the, the climate change and in sort of in renewable energy and clean energy, there is, uh, you know, there is a strong economy that can be had out of that. What's the, the issue in kind of persuading people that that's the case? Well, so firstly, you have to write that, you know, the quality of life, the, the key to the Green New Deal is that quality of life could well improve, indeed should well improve under a successful Green New Deal. Because this is about building new forms of communal luxury, about sort of 
you know, rewilding, not just sort of uh, rural areas, but also planting more trees, more spacious parks, more free decarbonized electric buses. So, you know, new forms of care work that sort of values people and has dignity for those who are working, uh, whether it's waged or unwaged labor. Um, but of course, you know, I think it's not just when it comes to the Green New Deal, but I think there's an interesting challenge for progressives across the world. And we're still seeing this to an extent in the US um, with the campaign between Sanders and Joe Biden, who, you know, um, clearly Sanders is offering a much more ambitious, transformative approach to tackling the many crises in American society. But I think there is that psychological sort of sense of things might be looking a bit grim, but actually I prefer to sort of stick, not twist. And so I think it's about a number of things that can be done. First, telling a story about how change can improve people's lives and their communities. I think it's about showing what this means. So you mentioned renewable energy. You know, one way to make the Green New Deal seem not such a sort of scary leap for some people is to scale up a whole sort of new wave of community-owned renewable energy, um, you know, prefiguring the wider change that is to come. And then I think you need to build alliances, you know, so trade unions and youth strikers, older voters who are worried about you know, the prospects of their grandchildren through to people who are living in sort of insecure rented housing that's badly sort of insulated who want secure, decent, warm homes. Try and build a really broad cross-class um, coalition behind a Green New Deal. And you mentioned the sort of publicly owned uh, renewable energy sources. What, what, why or why would it help for those things to be publicly owned? So it doesn't always have to be publicly owned, but it helps for the underlying infrastructure, like the sort of uh, network to be publicly owned for a number of reasons. I think the key in some ways is that ownership shapes a lot of things, but one of the things it affects is typically the purpose of the thing that's owned. And so if infrastructure is owned, uh, so energy infrastructure is owned to be profit maximizing for external investors who don't really have that much of an interest in the long term necessarily, or you know, interest in the communities in which these energy systems operate, they're typically going to try and extract as much profit and invest the bare minimum. And yet what we need is investment for the long term, rootedness, connectedness. And so democratic ownership, whether it's public ownership, whether it's community ownership, whether it's cooperatives, whether it's, you know, normal sort of limited companies, but with a strong mix of you know, worker ownership as part of the deal. They tend to have different purposes and they tend to be able to sort of prioritize things over profit maximizing, which isn't to say that you know, democratic forms of ownership and sort of you know, companies that are owned with more of a stake and a say for ordinary workers in society wouldn't necessarily make a profit. But their key goal, their key purpose would often be, for example, rapid, just decarbonization of the energy system while providing as affordable bills as possible rather than you know, the current mix where it's how can we extract sort of profits while investing and therefore keeping it at a minimum. Early you mentioned sort of things like social care being part of the Green New Deal. Um, and obviously, as you just mentioned, that you know, that when things are taken or, or done for profit, uh, it, it's, I mean, it's, it's not had great results, particularly in the UK, if we look at sort of the prison system and rehabilitation and, and various other areas of healthcare and things, um, we've seen that it's not necessarily worked in the, in, in the patients or in the public's favour, really. Um, how does the social care and the climate change bit work together? Am I, um, is it just that they're all part of the same drive to completely change kind of society and, and politics for our future? Or is there also ways in which, you know, we can now tackle social care in a eco-friendly way? Is that, do they combine in, in all ways? 
Yeah, I'd argue they do. So in some ways, care work is climate justice work. So it's low carbon, it's repairing, it's nurturing life. And that's really, in some ways, at the heart of what the Green New Deal has to repurpose our economy towards, from extractive economics to a caring economy. And that means not just sort of, you know, valuing, rewarding, um, you know, place and centering the sort of unwaged work of care that's currently done in the household that's often excluded and sort of very gendered. Um, but it's also about sort of you know, properly valuing paid care work and sort of social care, child care, but also the wider work of social reproduction from, you know, delivery drivers through to chefs through to, you know, whatever other, you know, all the work we need to feed ourselves, to sort of clean ourselves, to live um, and reproduce life. So I think we need to centre those forms of work and sort of value them much more. And I think also expand the definition of what sort of care is. Through. So, you know, one of the key things we can do to try and combat uh, climate crisis is rewild the UK. So the, the UK is one of the most nature depleted countries in the world because we've sort of deforested and stripped back our landscape so much. But so if, you know, care is central to it, you, know, you can see a future where hundreds of thousands of good jobs are in, you know, planting and maintaining forests, whether that's in towns, in cities, but also in rural life, whether it's about, you know, sort of building management where, you know, you have forests or like ecologies growing on roofs and, you know, sort of you green cities that way, green towns that way. There's a whole way of sort of centering care at the heart of it. But the key is that it's sort of, um, you know, it's by its nature low carbon, it's by its nature sort of relational it's about sort of caring and nurturing sort of uh, human and often you know non-human relationships and it's got a very different sort of rhythm and value but i think um your key point there at the start about at the moment you know much of social care is really underfunded for local authorities and then it's also then often provided by um you know sort of often sort of private equity backed or venture capital backed um, care providers like Southern Cross who, you know, let's say they don't necessarily put sort of the welfare of either the care receivers or caregivers necessarily at the heart of their business model. And so, yeah, there are some areas, you know, rehabilitation and prisons is another one where so the profit motive should just not be there at all. And so I think as we repurpose um, the economy towards a more caring, nurturing economy under a Green New Deal, then clearly the sort of the balance between you know what's public, what's commons, what's sort of socially provided and what's provided by, you know, sort of private companies, I think would have to change. I mean, it, it sounds brilliant. I'm, I'm a fan, but it's it's quite a big overhaul of what we've got right now. And we're speaking um, we're speaking one day before the budget tomorrow, which we're not sure what's going to be in it yet. Um, there might not be in it much in it at all. Um, but uh, you know, it, it is. Are we seeing any of these sort of changes in our current government? Is there anything that's even sort of remotely towards this, or have we got quite a long way to go before we've got anything close to a green new deal? So there's two things I'd say. So one. The budget is almost certainly going to be do dominated by the response to coronavirus. Um, and coronavirus is one of these sort of, you know, black swan style events. These kind of, you kind of know it can happen, but it's kind of come out of nowhere and it's going to sort of metasize. And, you know, fingers crossed it might, you know, when the spring hits, it might be contained. But if not, we're looking at a very seismic shock to the nature of the global economy, which might then spill out into transformative changes to, 
you know, sort of social security for in-school work, um, you know, because you, know, you might have seen a lot of people say, well, you know, we need to completely transform paid sick leave for people in the gig economy, et cetera, et cetera. Um, so you could see, so the things come along that, you know, people didn't bargain for, but then ripple out and radically transform things. And I'm not actually saying coronavirus will have that effect, but it could quite possibly have a really quite significant effect. You know, if it tips us into recession, if it forces us to shape, reshape our sort of social security system, et cetera. So who knows? So, so the first thing is that we just, you know, things might seem settled and permanent, but often actually, you know, we're not that far from deep change. And the second thing is with the government itself. I mean, I think there's a couple of things. One, there's obviously more than one government in the UK. So I think you're seeing all these climate emergencies declared at local government level. So I think you're beginning to see some quite interesting movement from city mayors, local government. And of course, the Scottish government have set a net zero target for 2045. So no um, emissions once you net out sort of some emissions um, being sort of uh, taken out by natural systems by 2045, which is five years in advance of the UK. So there's lots of ambition in some ways, although all of those have to accelerate and expand their ambition. As to the UK government, I mean, I do think that, you know, let's see, as you say, let's see. But the commitment to levelling up, at least, does potentially present a opening. Now, it might be an opening that will be slammed shut, but it's an opening in the sense that, you know, if you want to level up, you, sh you simply have to, in a climate emergency, level up with green infrastructure. So if you're going to be spending tens of billions, make sure you spend it on low carbon infrastructure, on infrastructure that creates green industries, green jobs, et cetera, et cetera. So, you know, you never know. It might be that there is this combination of interests of recognizing they need to act, of trying to sort of unlock public investment that does at least begin to move the conversation forwards. Um, but there's, you know, at the moment, so IPR, um, did some analysis, IPR is a think tank, a big think tank, did some analysis on the weekend that, I sh that showed that on current measures to reach uh, net zero by 2050, which is in many ways far too late, um, they would still, they'd have to invest an extra 33 billion a year just to meet that um so they really need to step up so we'll see what they do on wednesday part of me wonders is, is part of the problem that we're unable to you know future proof or, or think ahead to the future because uh one of the things that has been announced for the budget and this may well not be in it by the time listeners hear this um was doubling the flooding spending but that's only happened as flooding has happened and so it's reactive rather than kind of preventative is that an issue with the way in which we think is is climate change and, and possibilities of it happening too much for us to think about or, or deal with appropriate appropriately until it hits us yeah i mean i do think there is a sort of political problem in the way we psychologically approach long-term problems so we kind of know broadly um what the potential implications are for human life and natural systems if we cross certain temperature increases in the next 20 30 40 50 years etc and all of them at an accelerating rate are pretty grim. And they're pretty grim in particular for people who did least cause the crisis. Um, so we're talking, you know, anywhere between, according to the UN, you know, 200 million to almost a billion people will be, you know, displaced by climate um, change. Hundreds of millions affected by like either sort of mega floods or sort of 
terrible heat waves that you know make the Australia sort of summer earlier this year look like you know a nice cool winter's day. So we kind of know these problems, and yet, as you say, it's still quite a reactive politics. It's sort of oh shit, it's flooding. Better send us more now. But we also know that flooding will increase dramatically in the UK. Water droughts will increase dramatically in the UK, according to um, Water England, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. And yet we're not doing enough. And obviously, to some degree, we are doing some things. It's not like we're not planning enough. But clearly, there is this you know, challenge around political messaging about um, you know how you set a policy program which kind of is speaking about benefits all will be delivered in the here and now but in some ways is trying to sort of forestall and not make happen something that is at current rates going to happen but we can't really sort of imagine the scale of breakdown and so that is a problem um but if we don't get it right then this there's basically a train hurtling towards us which you know for many many people is already here you know climate crisis is already here it's just unevenly distributed but if that sort of train does hit um us at full speed and keeps accelerating then you know then there was a report by jp morgan ironically one of the world's or i think the world's largest investor in fossil fuel um infrastructures and extractive companies but i said you know yeah and it's true if temperature rises accelerate um you know at the upper bound of what we're expecting then life as we know it it becomes quite difficult to imagine how we sustain it and so I think, you know, which is a very thing, hard thing to imagine it for some, you know, but that is a challenge. Recognising the scale of the crisis and then not shrinking and, and sort of giving up, but saying actually we need to purposefully act to steward our collective futures now rather than sort of reacting piecemeal down the way without enough urgency and energy. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code buttery exclusions apply see site for details there's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with plush care plush care accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board certified physicians who can prescribe fda approved weight loss medications like wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify take charge of your health and speak with a board certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss that's plushcare.com slash weight loss plushcare.com slash weight loss even when we're on a budget we still deserve nice things quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80 percent less than similar brands they have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at 50 dollars, luxurious italian leather bags and so much more plus quince only works with factories that use safe ethical and responsible manufacturing Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns. And we'll be back with Matt in a minute, but first... Budget, budget, it's another budget, 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 such a long budget, 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 budget. 
It's hard to remember everything that happened last week when you're cooped up indoors, and each and every day is a relentless game of working out exactly how long you can eat things for after they've gone off. And is hummus still safe to consume if it's actively talking to you and now says it owns your fridge and will attack you if you try to remove it? But in amongst playing the game of which global lead you prefer to have instead of ours right now, yes, even Rodrigo Duterte, even him, there was a budget that took place last week. Yeah, really, yes. That was that. That was that, that was. Yeah, I know. I know it seemed like Chancellor and Pipe Cleaner on drugs Rishi Sunak was just gathering as many politicians together as possible to see who could catch the coronavirus first, but no, he actually had a reason for it too. Not a good enough reason, mind. And yes, he could have done it over a webcam, no doubt, but then how would he have known if his one joke would have worked? As a comedian, I entirely sympathise. And he did get a laugh for saying that Shadow Chancellor and what if all the characters from The Last of the Summer Wine were squished into just one man, John McDonnell, that his book, Economics for the Many, was a work of fantasy and that it sold so many, it was his little red book. That's a good bit of wordplay, that, isn't it? Great gag from Sunak. You know, if he hadn't done it around a whole raft of spending increases that probably won't end up happening due to the current crisis and that mostly make it sound like he's one of the few people who read McDonnell's book. It feels a bit like making a joke about how U2's mind-numbingly bland album Sons of Experience is definitive proof that years of maturity don't mean you've actually learned how to make decent music that doesn't sound like a cow yawning into a cement blender, all the while wearing Bono-style sunglasses and your massive U2 t-shirt and humming all of the tunes. Which would sound largely like someone had just left an extractor fan on. They're really bad. Actually, I'm lying a bit, uh, not about U2's terrible, terrible album, but about Sunak's budget being anything like a Labour one. Yes, there were spending increases promised, but not really in many areas that will do all that much to repair austerity, and will probably all be cancelled when the entire UK budget has been spent on shipping the elderly to the silly isles and occasionally delivering lemon curd in large batches. So, was there any good stuff in the budget, though? Was there anything worth noting? Or was it just Rishi Sunak's own Bible in that it's better if you believe in it, but otherwise highly problematic and needs updating? That's my that's my one joke right there. The main thing was some money to deal with the coronavirus, because there had to be. Even this government, with their incredible skill set of not sending anyone to answer questions on important things, or in Johnson's case, hiding in a fridge till people stop asking, it isn't beyond impossible that Sunak could have pretended he'd never heard of coronavirus while coughing over anyone's questions about it and not seeing why that would have been insensitive. But he didn't. But while he didn't, and while there was money allocated for the pandemic and promises the government would give the NHS whatever it takes, something that actually repeating it now sounds almost like a threat, it's very unlikely anything offered will actually be enough. £5 billion for the NHS and public services to cope with would be great if we hadn't had 10 years of the NHS having an annual £6 billion deficit, or massive understaffing to the tune of 43,000 less nurses than needed, or a reduction in over 16,000 hospital beds, or the complete lack of a social care plan for years, meaning some patients who get ill and might have once been looked after by care staff will now end up in hospital instead. A worst-case scenario estimates that 2.6 million people will need intensive care to deal with the virus. After 10 years of cuts and underfunding, suddenly slamming down a lump sum to the NHS and saying, hey, cope with all this bullshit, feels not unlike underfeeding a horse for its entire foalhood and then throwing it a Tesco value meal in the hope that that'll give it enough GG power to help you win Ascot. But also, when it comes to containing and dealing with the virus, there's very little joined-up thinking. The migrant surcharge has been increased, meaning the amount people from abroad have to pay to use the NHS is £641, which doesn't really encourage anyone to seek medical help if they need it, but also doesn't raise much money at all and applies to lots of foreign workers who work in the NHS. So they heal you from coronavirus, catch it and then can't afford to have it dealt with. 
Statutory sick pay now kicks in from day one of employees being made to self-isolate, but that's £94.25 a week, less than a third of the average full-time employment wage. Self-employed chumps like moi and zero-hours workers might qualify for employment support allowance, which should now be made easier to claim, but would only be £73.10 a week. Don't go to work and stay indoors until your lack of going to work means your house gets repossessed or your landlord kicks you out. There's been a further £650 million pledged to tackle homelessness, but that will likely have to be used just gathering all sick leave workers off the streets before the entire country has a zombie island feel, and no one likes Scooby-Doo that much. It's very short-term thinking, as increased sickness benefits would leave less people in poverty, meaning the economy would eventually benefit again as people emerged from their bunkers and started spending. Whereas at the moment, a move like this can only really lend itself to post-pandemic impossible-to-pay-back individual borrowing of the kind that led to the 2008 crash. Still, at least by then, maybe we'll all just be so happy to be outside and see other humans, we'll spend a year or so doing free social activities, such as fighting or fucking or both at the same time. There is seven billion for small business support through the pandemic, but there are five million businesses in the UK, so that's about fourteen hundred pounds, which will really support all of them when they need to buy three loo rolls each from the black market. And then the rest of the budget is as blindly hopeful that somehow a whole ton of money will just arrive from somewhere. The whole thing was based on the Office of Budget Responsibilities growth forecast from February, you know, before the Lurgies happened, and even then it was pretty bleak at just 1.1% for the year. So with that, the Chancellor is going to do some borrowing, you know, that thing that when Labour said they might do, we're told it was unrealistic and dangerous and would ruin the country, but it's okay because when the Chancellor does it, it won't actually be enough to do anything useful except mean they owe a lot of money, and then they'll be able to blame it on someone else for not being optimistic about it or something. The borrowing is meant to mean that they can make a rise in current spending, aka day-to-day costs, and spending on capital spending, aka some real fancy new shit. But the idea is that all of that will be within the government's old fiscal rules, meaning that in three years all the current spending would be paid for with current revenue, and la di some lovely budget times for this entire parliament. Except that some of the day-to-day revenue is meant to come from fuel duty, which has never raised as much as has been predicted for years, and again Sunak froze that tax, so it likely won't raise it again. And also bear in mind eco-anxiety might mean less car use over the next five years, combined with how once we've all been indoors for three years all our car engines will have rusted and died. And by then we'll all be wandering the scorched earth with just a shopping trolley and our sun anyway. Then there's the Treasury's calculations that they'll have £11.7 billion to spare with all of this, even though the Resolution Foundation say the average error margin for a forecast is £29 billion. And all of this ignores that the last 10 years have meant cuts to all public services and councils have meant day-to-day spending is at a minimum, so have no financial wiggle room left. Basically, we're at breaking point. The IFS has said that while on average the annual increase in day-to-day spending sounded substantial, most of the new cash has already been designated for Tory manifesto promises and to replace EU income, meaning areas hit by austerity will still be having a shitty, shitty time. The Chancellor's budget showed that the money saved by not sending it to the EU would have been around £42 billion, which is much less than the £91 billion as promised by the big lie bus, and then barely any of that is going to go to the NHS because it's probably got to go on something ludicrously boring like, I don't know, retesting all electrical goods to be exactly the same but now different standards, or, I don't know, renaming Potassery Valerie and Pret-a-Manger so they'll be called Val's Calf and dinner's fucking well ready. Hurry up. 
And the rest of the budget detail included absolutely nothing to tackle climate change, instead putting money into road repairs and potholes. Well, not literally, as that would be an even worse waste. There were no announcements about social care funding at all, finances for Northern Ireland, Scotland and Wales, that will leave massive holes in their finances. And while the removal of the tampon tax was in essence a very good thing, the money from tampon tax was being put towards services tackling violence against women and girls, or women's health services, and there was no news of what would replace all that money that they'd need to keep going. You can't be all about one type of feminine care but absolutely ignore all the other, can you? So will any of this budget mean anything in a week? I mean, yes, I guess it will mean that wherever the country is, we'll be certain that the people in charge of all the departments really like making big announcements without actually doing anything substantial. This is what levelling up means to the government. Like in an online game where you'd spend a ton of money getting a series of different costumes, none of which will help at all when the stages get increasingly harder. So, when it comes down to it, again, it seems a bit off for Sunak to have criticised John McDonnell's book for its fantasy content when he's just announced an epic movie trilogy without having confirmed the cast or production house and currently all he's holding are a novelty pair of elf ears having sold off all the other costumes and artwork. And now, back to Matt. Yeah, I mean, I, I find it fascinating that, you know, a lot of what is sort of mentioned to the Green New Deal or it's, or it's seen as a kind of socialist policy and that there are there's lots of public ownership involved in socialism sort of elements. But actually, what could be more attractive to capitalism than keeping people alive so that they can spend money <laughs> and keeping areas of the planet still going? Surely that's the kind of way that we should be uh, sell, not that we should sell it, but, you know, the way it should be promoted. I mean, I mean, yeah, I mean, indeed, that 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 would seem like a, a reasonable thing. Sort of capitalism would want is uh, people to continue to be able to spend and consume and work. But um, yeah, I mean, I think I think, but it does touch on a sort of wider point there, which is I think you're right that the Green New Deal has emerged from the left. Um, so the Green New Deal it first emerged in, amongst a group of um, economists and politicians, including people like Caroline Lucas, um, back in. I think it was 2008, uh, might be 2007, but it was only in response to the financial crisis about how you can use a response to the financial crisis back then to repurpose and green our economy. But then obviously kind of reignited, um, particularly from energy in the US, um, from uh, Congresswoman Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez proposed it, and then it was taken up by social movements like the Sunrise Movement, et cetera, et cetera. And then that kind of spilled over to the UK and it was most associated with, I guess, sort of, a, sort of the democratic um, left sort of movements around the Labour Party and within the Labour Party. And I think now it's interesting, A, it's kind of spilled out beyond that. And so there's this you know, claim across, which in some ways is, is a strength, but it's now increasingly common sense. But I think what you'll also see is a growing tension around what some people call greenwashing, this idea that you sort of say, oh, yeah, it's a Green New Deal. Um, so you'll see this at the European Commission level where they've proposed a Green Deal, um, but it's not nearly large enough in the scale or ambition of investment. And you'll certainly see, I think, you know, a bit like on the right in America and indeed the authoritarian right across the world, You'll, you'll see this transition from in the right in America, there's been this shift from um, denying that climate change is even a thing, just denying outright the science, to saying, oh, it is true, and that's why we need to put up massive borders, that's why we need to have like gunboats in you know, the Gulf of Mexico shooting down any sort of um, boats carrying people fleeing, you know, sort of desertification or disruption of their, um, you know, 
where they lived because of sort of destruction of habitats, etc. And so I think you might also see this thing of capitalism being like, oh God, it's bloody, it's really expensive to you know invest to decarbonize our energy systems, our industries, etc. To suddenly going, hold on a second, we can make a ton of money if we're the first movers into renewable energy, battery technology, you know, low carbon mobility services, green financing, et cetera, et cetera. There's a lot of money to be made. And I think there'll be that tension, you know, hopefully a healthy tension in many ways between different elements of the political and economic landscape trying to claim ownership of, you know, leadership around rapid decarbonization. But I think the tension um some of those last camps is you might be able to decarbonize but you're unlikely to be able to do it with the level of justice the level of democratic empowerment that should be fundamental to a green new deal yeah it's it's mad isn't it that there's sort of uh you know for example in some of those in some of those examples that you just gave they've been willing to spend a lot of money on a wall but not necessarily on like a renewable energy or a lovely park or something <laughs> it'd, it'd probably be cheaper to get a couple of uh you know, renewable energy sources rather than a massive wall between the US and Mexico. But there you go. Um, Indeed, yeah. <laughs> I mean, there's a lot of sun around the sort of Texan sort of borderlands, I imagine. So, like, you know, throw down a few renewals. Although, I mean, even that, so, I mean, Texas, apparently, I was reading the other day, it's apparently, like, a huge centre of onshore renewable wind, like, one of the, like, massive. Um, it's one of the biggest renewable generators in the US. Obviously, like, you know, the borders are separate and, you know, very sort of, uh, barbaric sort of thing that Trump's doing, although obviously, you know, he's kind of hardening a sort of very violent border that existed before him. Um, but, you know, the sort of Texas renewables revolution does show that, like, even when we, th- even at the very heart of, you know, carbon economics, you know, there are some flourishing alternatives. And I think that's definitely relevant for when we think of, you know, large parts of the UK economy, you know, are still heavily involved in oil and gas, et cetera, et cetera. And it's quite reasonable for those workers to sort of want to hear a genuine plan for how you can transition to renewables or sort of, you know, new sectors. Um, so sort of, you know, ironically, Texas might show the way forwards. That's great. I mean, it's, it's so good that climate change is regularly part of the conversation. Probably, as, as you mentioned earlier, 20 years too late than you know, later than it should be. Um, what, what's the next big step for the Green New Deal then? Because you, you said earlier that Bernie Sanders obviously running on the platform of pushing for the Green New Deal as well as a worker ownership plan, which would tie into all of that. Um, would America, you know, were Bernie Sanders to win, which not sure about yet, and then worry to then beat Trump? It's a long, long uh, chain of possibilities. But would America adopting the Green New Deal be the sort of thing that needs to happen for other countries to... Uh, adopt such policies and kind of follow on from that do we do we need one big sort of global power to say this is the way that we're going forward or could it start at a smaller level and lead from there so i think you know we we need one you know two like many green new deals and so you know from you know your local authority making sure that their pensions you know public pensions part are invested in renewables and sustainable sources to making sure there's lots of electric buses to you know everything everything needs to be lots of green new deals at multiple scales um but clearly if we're really going to make a change the behavior of the world's largest emitters um which you know the us china um the eu increasingly india etc 
um, needs to change. But then clearly those are wealthiest nations who have historically emitted the most, like the US and the EU, have to lead both for historical obligations of justice, but also because of they just have more capability potentially. And I think in terms of the US, the, I mean, the US for all its like, you know, deep um, inequalities and all its like complete dysfunctionality, if there was one single actor that really could begin to push things, it would be the federal government. So if we look to the scale of, uh, the scale of financial power they were able to mobilize during the financial crisis, so the Federal Reserve, their equivalent of the Bank of England, was able to mobilise and basically sustain many of the central banks and indeed the global economy in many ways alongside a huge Chinese stimulus programme. Almost overnight, you know, they just turned it on. And so the federal government, and then if you look, you know, the federal government in terms of like the famous moonshots around, you know, sort of technology development, et cetera, et cetera, you know, they do have an awful lot of, capacity financial firepower etc etc and so yes if they did you know if the u.s and also you know it's the nodal point of sort of basically you know a sort of neo-imperial structure that sort of uh, whether it's its military power its financial power its geopolitical power you know if it did radically change its positioning um it would make a huge difference and it would you know probably it would send a signal to wider economies and societies to sort of to move in that direction um, so yeah, it would it would make a huge difference. I wouldn't necessarily like you know I wouldn't hold out much hope because there's an awful lot of you know uh, congealed power in America that is likely to sort of try and sort of limit and water down a Green New Deal. Let alone you know it's looking a bit uh, it's not looking great for old uh, Bernie right at the moment because of Super Tuesday. Um, so you know don't give up hope, but don't don't hold to too much hope for the US, uh, I'd say. Um, and, you know, in some ways, if they if they, don't, if they get it, go down a path of inadequate action, you know, the ball kind of falls to the European Union and the UK to some extent, but also, um, you know, Chinese leadership in many ways to sort of drive you know, rapid investment and decarbonisation. Is there something, uh, you know, if, if America don't adopt this policy or if a big global power doesn't adopt this policy, what is it that everyday people can do because i think one of the big problems with climate change um is that sometimes people find it quite overwhelming there's a lot of eco anxiety a lot of concerns that it's a bigger thing than any of us can tackle um is there anything obviously voting is one thing that people can do but is there anything else that people should be doing to kind of push for the green new deal are there ways that we can adopt it in the places that we work or in places that we live yeah i mean i think you know it's Eco-anxiety is you know, growing, um, you know, it's, a, it's like a sort of skyrocketing um, psychotherapeutic sort of um, analyses of people with eco-anxiety. And you can kind of see why, because, you know, as you say, it's this vast, you know, challenge, you know, the biggest challenge in some ways that human societies have ever faced collectively, and yet, you know, our individual actions don't see, you know, we can turn all the lights off as much as we want and that would you know, maybe help. But it's not a sustainable solution. And really what we need, to, we need to meet a systems crisis, a crisis rooted in deep structural institutional uh, systems with a systemic response. So we need a sort of complete transformative systemic 
set of interventions to upgrade and decarbonize and build justice into our economy. And so that seems a bit like, oh God, how do, how do I do that? Uh, and you, so you can kind of see the anxiety. And clearly voting is one way of doing it. Um, but I think there's a whole host of things that people can do. Everything from, you know, sort of supporting social movements. Um, so there's a new organization called Ukraine um, Green New Deal, which is doing really exciting work, organizing everything from, you know, social movements, uh, youth strikers, campaigns, et cetera, et cetera. So worth checking them out, UK Green New Deal, through supporting sort of, you know, I guess more established um, organizations who are developing policies, who are developing uh, campaigning initiatives on the Green New Deal, you know, getting involved in political parties of various stripes to do these things, you know, joining a trade union and then sort of, you know, pushing and voting for um, candidates who are going to sort of send to the just transition in, in you know, collective bargaining, in, you know, their engagements as a, as a trade union, um, you know, and obviously being a sort of green consumer as far as uh, you're able to, um, whether it's buying renewable energy, um, whether it's um, you know, cycling where you can rather than driving, although, you know, not everyone can do that because of the state of public transport, etc. So, you know, there's limits to what individuals can do, but clearly there are things both at a sort of economic, political and social level um, they can they, they can do to try and, you know, make contribute their small part in terms of individuals' emissions reduction, um, but then also, um, you know, contributing to wider sort of systemic change through their sort of political life brilliant i mean it, it also makes you just feel better that you're doing something doesn't it rather than kind of sitting here watching as uh, other powers maybe fail to do it around us um uh, one question that i ask all my guests and thank you so much for your time today matt um one question that i ask all the interviewees uh, just with the sort of hope of spreading knowledge really um is that apart from yourself and commonwealth and you've just mentioned the uk green new deal there um who should listeners also check out for kind of writing commentary opinion um on radical climate policy and and sorry and public ownership uh, who who do you go to who are the people that you like to read or, or listen to well so there's, there's a bunch which is great um so the ippr which i mentioned earlier uh, you can think they've got their environmental justice commission um with caroline lucas and ed Miliband as the commissioners and they're um they're putting out a big sort of uh, report in the next few weeks so watch out for that ippr's environmental justice commission um, obviously Commonwealth's Blueprint for Green New Deal, but then uh, people like Neth, New Economics Foundation, are doing interesting work. Um, and then there's a whole host of like, you know, good accessible books that you can read. So there's The Case of the Green New Deal um, by Anne Pettifor, who was one of the economists involved in the 2008 uh, Green New Deal initiative, which I mentioned earlier. And she's a sort of great proponent of the Green New Deal. Um, and there's a great book, by a bunch of uh, really brilliant uh, American academics and activists called A Planet to Win, uh, which is from Verso. Um, and that's um, people like Alyssa Bastoni. There's there's four authors, Kate Aronoff and um, Theoria Frankos and Daniel Adana Cohen. That's really good, accessible um, introduction um, and brings quite a nice international and US lens uh, while speaking to the wider sort of nature of green new deal and then um you know there's plenty of other uh i mean in some ways the thing is like everything should be about green new deal now because you know, all investment discussion should be about how green are they etc etc um so there's plenty of stuff but you know that those, those 
would be a good place to start. And I think we also did, we've just launched our blueprint for a green deal, but also um, we put out last summer roadmap to a green new deal, which is kind of almost green, green new deal 1.0. And that that's got a whole bunch of things that's worth checking out and a couple of interactive sort of uh, imaginations of what a city could look like if a green new deal did, did occur and how it would transform life. And then the, on so public ownership and common ownership, um, I mean, I think, you know, we own it um, and the work of Cat Hobbs is really great sort of campaigning organization, which sort of is really good at articulating the case for 21st century democratic public ownership. Um, the work of the Democracy Collaborative in the US, um, but who also work, do work here is interesting. And it'd be worth checking out um, the work of CLES, so um, Center for Local Economic Strategies. Um, but you know, typically if you search for CLES, uh, listeners will be able to find it. And they've done a lot of really interesting work on the community wealth building uh, agenda. This is idea, idea around um, just being much more strategic around uh, local authorities and economic development and trying to sort of root and generate wealth in localities rather than seeing it extracted out. So that's everything from, you know, more effective public spending, more support for alternative forms of business ownership, you know, scaling up community assets like community energy, et cetera. So Claire's work is really interesting as well as we own it. Um, so there's a whole bunch of things out there that's worth sort of getting stuck into. Thanks to Matt for having time to chat. Oh, that rhymed. Um, you can find him on Twitter at Danton's Head, D-A-N-T-O-N-S Head. And the Commonwealth Think Tank is at C-M-M-O-N Wealth or common-wealth.co.uk, where you'll find all their blueprints for a Green New Deal, as well as lots of proposals for democratic ownership and more. And let's face it, you've got time to read them right now. Who do you need to hear from while we're in global flu dodging lockdown? I'm trying to get pandemic related guests, uh, whether that's people who can explain its effects on an economy or society or just someone who might bug all of you until you feel ill. But if there is another aspect that you want to hear about right now, let me know who or what it is and I will get on the case. Uh, drop me a line at Parpol Bro, the Partly Political Broadcast Facebook group, the contact page at partlypoliticalbroadcast.co.uk or just email me at partlypoliticalbroadcast at gmail.com. Or why not just spray your suggestion onto the streets with disinfectant and when we all emerge from our isolation in years to come, I'll find it burned into the scorched earth, but by then I won't have a podcast as I'll be too busy scavenging for old Nintendo Switch games. So, as always, it's probably just best to email, isn't it? Thank you tons for listening to this week's show. Um, it's quite dense at bits, wasn't it, that budget bit? Um, I hope wherever you are, uh, you are flu and overzealous panic shopper free. However, however you are, uh, you're about to be instantly better after hearing this week's top secret political goss fact. Because you, your hardcore team, listen to the Enders You, Team Audio Periphery. Yeah, I'll find a better name for you at one point. One day I will. Um, anyway, this week, did you know the Conservative Party leader at the time of the Spanish flu pandemic in 1918 was called Bonar Law? But he didn't at all prevail over any policies to do with pornography or anything at all related to his name um, he was the shortest serving PM of the 20th century serving just 211 days from 1922 to 1923 so maybe uh, Bonalore his name was referring to how he was done before he wanted to be uh, he sort of 
premature, wouldn't he? Um, anyway, he did actually die after that, so this is all the Tad Callis. Uh, R.I.P. Boner, which is something that usually happens when you think of a Conservative leader. Hey, um, maybe that's the reason he was called it. Anyway, uh, that's this week's Hot Goss, and there'll be more next week until coronavirus starts to infect people's ears through airwaves, and we will have to live in a very boring version of a quiet place for six months. Whatever happens, don't forget to tell others about this here podcast. Review the show on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or wherever does that sort of thing, and donate to the Kofi or Patreon, uh, not just if you like this show, but basically uh, to keep me alive. Disinfected shout-outs to Acast, my brother the last sceptic for the music times, Cat Day for the linear liner notes, and Mushy Bees for all our goodness. This will be back next week, when after outrage, the government announces that the coronavirus is now the health minister. Bye! This week's show is sponsored by Boris Johnson's Guide to Social Distancing, involving such tips as stab all your friends in the back, never apologise for things, and endlessly lie. Boris Johnson's Guide to Social Distancing, follow his expert advice and you're very unlikely to have any friends at all within weeks, meaning the only infections you'll get are the myriad of STIs you house on your nether regions like a macrobiotic zookeeper. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365 day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus. Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns.